and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. We've had lots of feedback from diverse listeners after our first three episodes of this season. If you're just tuning in, we're having in-depth conversations with the candidates for the open Allegheny County executive seat. This is Pennsylvania's second largest county with over a million residents. The county seat is Pittsburgh. The county workforce of thousands and the county budget is in the billions. If you haven't tuned in, give a listen to conversations with Sarah and Murado, Michael Lamb, and John Weinstein. Today, we'll be sitting down with Dave Fawcett. As a reminder, each of these four conversations happened more or less simultaneously in late March. Now, Dave's no stranger to tough fights, notching some very impressive legal victories over his career, including one heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. Dave Fawcett, welcome to my kitchen table. Glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? We're good. About 50 days out from the county executive's race, and it's, uh, it's quite the sprint. So, right. Who's counting? Well, I'm, I'm sure you and your team are, and early voting's even earlier. Uh, so right. Well, hey, I wanted to start just to share with folks a little about your background. Where in the county are you from? And then we'll get into uh, the nuts and bolts of how you're going to uh, uh, run this race in the final sprint. Yeah, great. So I'm from uh, a suburb just uh, north of Pittsburgh, uh, Shaler, and uh, right across the Allegheny River. I grew up there and uh, went to uh, Carnegie Mellon here and taught for a couple of years in New York, went to uh, Pitt Law School, and I've been a lawyer. I, and now I live in a, in a uh, town also along the Allegheny River called Oakmont. And I know that you had served on county council before, but why why, why this race? Why now to uh, throw your hat into the ring? Yeah, so uh, a couple of reasons. So our county council, when I was on it, was was new. We used to have a commissioner system, and we went to a county council uh, system with, with a, a county executive. And I learned a lot about the county at the time. And I, I also learned about the importance of the county executive position. It's really a hugely important position here in in western pennsylvania and you know a lot of people might think the mayor is sort of the, the important position and and in many ways it is but uh, just a lot more i think money power and things at stake in, in in the county executive race but the county council position was part-time i work as a busy lawyer have for many years trying cases and uh, both uh, civil cases jury trials and also a lot of pro bono work uh, in the criminal justice field. But anyway, now uh, we've had uh, competent, good county executives uh, since the start of this new system. But now I feel like we're either at a crossroads or really uh, approaching what I'll call quite a crossroad uh, here in, in, in Pittsburgh, particularly in Allegheny County, you know, a time where we have tremendous opportunities and tremendous challenges. And, and I think we really need a leader, one who can r- run this big ship known as a county, a, a multi-billion operation, and uh, also someone that will uh, lift, be able to lift their head above and say, hey, where do we want to be in 10 and 15 and 20 years? And what can we do now to get there? 
To that, well, actually, you know what? Can you remind listeners? We have a lot of listeners outside of Western Pennsylvania and, and well, beyond Pennsylvania. So most Pennsylvania counties have three elected commissioners, and you referred to county council, and now we're talking about the county executives race, as folks know from this season. Um, so just remind folks when this change went into effect in the structure of Allegheny County government. Yeah. So Allegheny County, like other counties in Pennsylvania, had somewhat of an odd, uh, maybe antiquated system with three commissioners. For years, and the, the commissioners had both legislative and executive power, which that's sort of the oddity of it. And then in 1999, a referendum passed, which uh, created, allowed for the creation of a, a new government uh, by the passage of a home rule charter. And the new new government, uh, which began in 2000, was uh, consisted of a county executive, two at-large council members, and 13 districts council members. And that was a really interesting thing because most of us had been on my borough council, but most of us had no no political experience at all, no government experience. So here we were, you know, I remember early on saying, okay, well, where do we meet? You know, when do we meet? What what do we do? And uh, luckily, some of us had a teeniest bit of experience and we really had, I think, a great time and got a lot done in those days. Uh, it, was, it was it was really fascinating time, and the first thing we did was consolidated the row offices here in Allegheny County, which is another antiquated product of of I guess the Progressive Era. So I want to I want to take a step back. I mean, at what point did you say you know I'm going to pursue a career in law? And I do want to take a moment and and also reflect on uh, you've had quite the legal career, and probably the best is still yet to come. But did a light bulb go off in high school, or at what point did you say you want to go and get a law degree? So I came from a family of lawyers. My father and grandfather were lawyers. That didn't mean I knew anything about uh, what it meant to be a lawyer or practicing law much. But when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I was one of the uh, few people in addition to my majors that got a teaching certificate. And I delved into teaching and frankly, learned what a a difficult job that is. But moreover, you know, a difficult job in which to make change. And I did feel that... uh, I don't want to say a calling, but a real interest in 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 law and particularly law, politics, society, and societal problems and policy and and I think fundamentally action. You know, our, our politics is full of people who either don't have real business experience or law experience, uh, and then we have people who are full of uh, policy ideas and and everything in between. So you know, I think law at least for me, has been a good, a real good qualifier for the kind of things you need to do in to be an effective government leader, and particularly in local government, uh, which here is, 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 as I said, very important, where you can think globally and act locally, but you don't necessarily have to fight all the ideological battles, but you do have to fight when it's... Uh, when you have to be tough and you have to be able to negotiate and the kind of things that I've done uh, throughout my career. Yeah, you just used the word negotiate, and I've seen several times since you got on this race in December, you've used a great term, um, which, frankly, they could use a lot more of in Washington, D.C., negotiate solutions. Uh, And it just seems like uh, maybe I'm wrong, but is that your approach, essentially, to to public policy and governing, Uh, negotiating solutions? Well, of course, of course. And I think, uh, though, negotiating solutions... We could have a whole uh, podcast on that. What does it mean to be an effective negotiator? It's not about taking a class and learning, you know, how to be a negotiator. It's really having the experience and the knowledge to 
again, as I said, I think to be really tough when you have to be and 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 principled when you have to be, but also to be willing to see other sides and to concede when you have to concede. Um, we do have people in this race and across America who, you know, wave the flag of protest. And there's certainly a, a, a place for those people. And I'm not critical at all because protests can often lead to change. But oftentimes those people aren't, for better or worse, really equipped to do the maybe uh, I shouldn't say it that way. They might not have the uh, experience necessary to negotiate solutions. And negotiation is tough as hell. It's not, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm just going to be nice and 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 try to agree, be agreeable. No, it's being really tough and knowledgeable and working hard. And we have these situations right now here in Pittsburgh that are, are big fights. For example, uh, our mayor and folks are in sort of what I'll call a war with our exempt nonprofit institutions, our, our universities and our hospitals who don't pay taxes. And, you know, they're protesting. And, and it's true that there has to be there has to be contributions and more contributions from the uh, nonprofit community, big nonprofits. You know, the hospitals make a ton of money here and so on. But uh, so far, what's occurred is there's just been a warfare <laughs> and not solutions when, in fact, you know, solutions could reap big benefits for the for the for the region. Not not solutions that would be easily to come by, but uh, you know, again, with a lot of hard work, could could result in real tangible results, i.e., money for uh, and resources for the programs that we need. And look, Pittsburgh and Allegheny County, like a lot of urban areas, this crossroads I'm talking about, we have tremendous opportunities, and we also have tremendous challenges. I mean, we have haves and have-nots. We have po- poverty. We have gun violence. Um, we have racial, uh, de facto racial segregation. We have criminal injustice, and we have crime. So uh, um, all those things, <laughs> it's a big bucket of list for which you need uh you know, to grow your economy and have resources and and sensible solutions. I appreciate you unpackaging all that for listeners. I want to take a step back, then we'll get then back to the county and back to this race. There's there's two cases you tried as a lawyer that were particularly uh, intriguing to me as I prepared for our discussion today. One had to do with solitary confinement, and then wildly different one had to do with uh, across the border in West Virginia. And my understanding is the latter one went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So. Maybe you could walk uh, listeners through, once again, using that negotiating solutions uh, lens. Right. Well, in one of those situations, we did look at things through a negotiation lens, and the other, we were forced to fight and take a case to the Supreme Court. And that, for your political junkies and people who just like mystery and suspense, that was a fascinating story. Um, I was the first person to take on uh, Massey Coal Company, which was the biggest employer in West Virginia and the biggest union busting company in the country at the time. And their ruthless CEO, Don Blankenship, who effectively decimated the U- uh, UMW o- over many years. And I mean decimated it. And I was the first one to really take him on. And in a series of cases, I got some verdicts, including my uh, a, a, a big verdict in his home uh, home area, you know, where, where the mines were and so on. Which which and, part of West Virginia? I don't I don't know how many West Virginia listeners we have. It's interesting. In the fall of 2022, we had all these listeners across Europe, but I never looked at our West Virginia data. But where <laughs> where part where of West Virginia? Mines? It was the coal fields. Mm-hmm. Coal fields are what they call any place where where they're uh, 
you know, tons of coal mines and, and hills in, in that southern West Virginia. So south of Charleston are, are, the, are principally the coal fields. But anyway, I'll make make it a short. So I got this big verdict. And afterwards, uh, Don Blankenship said, oh, well, gosh, that was that was the worst thing since the McDonald's case. And he vowed to do everything possible to undo it. Well, he sure did. When the case went up on appeal, he uh, pitched in a, a several million, four million, five million dollars and elected a a Republican uh, to the Supreme Court of West Virginia, first Republican on that court since 1924. And uh, the judge refused to recuse himself and uh, kicked my case out. So I had to take that case to the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, won a victory for all Americans, the victory, uh, uh, constitu- uh, the creation of a constitutional right to disqualify a judge uh, in certain circumstances, like here, where you get, uh, you know, untoward big uh campaign contribution. By the way, that is the basis of the book that John Grisham wrote called The Appeal, set in a different place and 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 time, but it's the the same story. So anyway, that case I had to fight and I had to fight Don Blankenship as I did for years and years and years and go to verdicts and so on. The other case you mentioned though is a different, completely different scenario. And it's what I talk about negotiation. In that case, our county, our who runs the county jail, of course, had, because of probably lack of resources, uh, been engaging in purposely or not an uh, abusive treatment towards pregnant uh, female inmates. You think about being uh, in jail and pregnant. Well, what do you need? You need what all pregnant women uh, need. Not that I know all about that. But, you know, you need uh, you have special nutritional needs and your health needs, mental health needs in certain cases and so on. And these women weren't uh, getting that. And in fact, for really minor rules violations, some of these women, uh, many of them actually were put into restrictive housing, which means solitary confinement. And it was horrendous. So we had to get tough and we we brought a, a challenge and a, a civil rights action, but we worked it out. And, and it was through some tough sledding, approaching, uh, you know, going down the road. But then we also got a great county solicitor that worked with us. And, you know, we negotiated some damages for the for the women. That means uh, some money for them. But equally important, and probably more important, redid the entire uh, policies and practices in the uh, manuals of the, of the uh, you know, the county relative to the treatment of, of, of women in, in, in the prison. So, you know, that was great. That was good. And that was an, that was an example of I mean, it was a great resolution, an example of two sides that were warring a bit, but, you know, worked really hard to to uh, make, a, you know, a positive result, get a positive result. Let me ask you, by the way, I think John Grisham or another great author should write a book about that, that, that we, we could spend uh, much more time talking, learning about that. What, what are the issues that, that you're hearing as you're out across the county and at people's doors and in different different forums? Uh, you mentioned earlier, for example, issues around criminal justice and rising crime rates. But but what, what seems to be top of mind as voters are preparing to make their decision in May? Well, certainly uh, rising crime and gun violence is a big issue. But, you know, people are not uh, some people don't care about uh, root causes, but many do. And many, many recognize the uh, situation we're in where we have throughout the county here haves and have nots. So I think a lot of people aren't certain where we are. And honestly, I think it's incumbent upon our 
our leader to have a view of where we are and what our uh, opportunities and challenges are. I mean, who has time to analyze that, but somebody <laughs> running for office or, or, or holding the position. And, you know, job creation is, is, is something that all politicians talk about. I don't think a whole, a whole lot of them can do anything about, but certainly here in Pennsylvania and Western uh, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, we can. And, and specifically, we have a big innovation center here in robotics community. And uh, however, after the innovations are made and startups uh, in some instances make money, the jobs, the manufacturing jobs that come out of that are going to other places like Baltimore and Columbus and Cincinnati and Rochester, New York. And, you know, that that shouldn't happen. And that's a matter of a lack of planning and foresight. But, you know, there's also people in the race that talk about many, many needs. And, and of course, we have them. Fair housing would be a good example and increased uh, resources for mental health workers and schooling. But, you know, these things cost not a little bit, a lot of, a little bit of money, but a lot of money. And uh, you can't rely on just state and federal funds and local funds. I mean, you've got to, uh, well, you, you do rely on those things, but you also need to make sure you have you know, good jobs and job opportunities, which give people, uh, uh, you know, opportunities to work and, and furthermore, give government resources to attack these problems. And the the other idea that I push, that's the right word, everywhere I go and get a really good reception on because people, I think, sense that it's important, but aren't sure how to get there, which is sustainability and climate change and lessening carbon footprint. You know, what what do you do in that regard? People can sing the song, but what uh, and talk talk to talk. But what what does it mean for a Rust Belt city like Pittsburgh? You know, and to me, it's very clear. We have one of the most beautiful cities in the world: green hills, uh, beautiful flowing, clean rivers, and uh, we should be a beacon of sustainability. You know, we're not the we're not Arizona or Florida, but they certainly aren't beacons of sustainability the way we can be. And uh, yeah, no, no, just just to that point. You have an initiative which I find very intriguing. I find, frankly, as I was learning more about it, I'm just surprised this hasn't been adopted 10 plus years ago with, with just a riverfront trail network and park system taking advantage of this great resource of the rivers uh, out there, which it's amazing to think not too long ago. And I think many listeners' lifetimes, those rivers were places you didn't want to be anywhere near, <laughs> to be honest, some of them right. caught fire, but it's quite different now. So maybe you could share with listeners as we wind down a little about your vision to um, you know, to really use that as a, a resource to, to market uh, the region and attract uh, jobs. Yeah. Cities and urban areas like ours, uh, again, formerly the Rust, uh, the manufacturing centers, and then the Rust Belt, you know, need to take uh, advantage of their natural advantages. And we have a plenty here, but uh our rivers and hills, as I said, you know, we all know are are, are incredible. Um, but how do we use our riverfronts right now? In uh, like in a lot of urban areas, well, we use them for big business. That is for rail rail lines shipping uh, things like uh, liquid fuels from North Dakota to Norfolk News, <laughs> Virginia. And uh, meanwhile, if you move those tracks back or off the off the river, you could have the greatest linear park in the world. When I was on the council 15 years ago, I had an ordinance passed empowering the county to create that park. And at the time I gulped, I said it'd be a $100 million investment. And now I know, no, it's a $500, $600 million investment and completely worth it. 
it would reap enormous returns because we have all sorts of old mill towns, but with existing housing stock and homes and libraries and streets and now some breweries and et cetera, that, you know, would just have an enormous resurgence with this with uh, this uh, park, which would be a linear park and not trails, a linear park with bikeways and walkways and light standards uh, like they did in Vancouver and like they're doing in Seoul, Korea, and, and, and they've done throughout Europe that would really allow people to commute by bicycle and walk any from anywhere to any place to any place along the rivers and then perpendicular connections would would rise up and so you could really get around and boy that's to me that's the that's a great thing for our future and something that you know people no, I, all I, are interested yeah, in. I, I fully agree unfortunately i don't live in pittsburgh <laughs> From the lesser half of the state, I'm originally from Allentown, but yeah, okay. you take a look. We have a lot of listeners in Philadelphia. You take a look what's happened with with yep. Kelly Drive, and they've extended it to the Schuylkill Banks, and then in Washington D.C. along the Potomac, that uh, takes cars off the road when it's just people getting some good exercise. You've been super generous with your time. Want to wind down with with two questions? Uh, really hot topic in Washington these days. It's one of the only bipartisan topics is uh, TikTok. And Lancaster County governments made a move to ban the device. The state treasurers made a move to ban the, the app on devices. So any thoughts on the TikTok app and county uh, devices? Uh, should you be in power in, uh, in January? Yeah, I'm a true expert on that. My daughter works. I'm, I'm not an expert, but when people like the FBI director, Chris Ray, have concerns about it, then uh, I, I do too. Well, let me tell you this. Uh, my daughter works for TikTok. So actually, I, I get all my information from her. Oh, and- I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, and my uh, son and my other uh, stepdaughters, they, they all laugh because they say after the hearings in Congress with the CEO of TikTok, there's one thing that's very, very clear to their generation, that those congressmen and women have no idea about uh, technology and what TikTok is. Now, I know TikTok can be addictive and has many negatives, but I'm very dubious and not my, hopefully not just because my daughter works there. But I mean, come on. What about Facebook and and Instagram and everything from Snapchat on up? I mean, I just I am dubious that that's somehow the great evil of the world that we need to attack. Well, um, so- I, I, I agree. I think if more kids were out on bike trails, for example, and less time on their screens. Uh, um, yeah. But that's let me ask you a totally different. That's what question. we need to worry about. But go ahead. Totally different question. Yeah. So, you know, for some reason, we have folks running for county government all across the United States talking about a very small department of county government, which is election administration, and um, just really trying to get into the weeds of electronic voting. And 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 we're just increasingly seeing uh, election denialism and you know, folks with some very goofy ideas, in my opinion. And it's very concerning um, because we know the 2024 election is less than 600 days away. And Anyhow, the eyes of the world are going to be on Pennsylvania is uh, my point. It's how this podcast began. So should you be county executive? Just thoughts on how to strengthen uh, our democracy at the county level and really prop up the good work of those just unsung heroes that work in the county uh, election administration office. Yeah, the, the case I took to the Supreme Court had everything to do with elections and the credibility of elections. And uh, when I was on the council, I was the chair of the board of elections and we had issues And I'll say this, there's nothing more important than not just an election that runs well and fairly, but one that is perceived to be fair and therefore has credibility. Because once you create doubt 
that attacks the roots of our democracy. And I think our county executives have a very important job in knowing all about the systems and doing everything possible to keep the systems credible. And, you know, honestly, as a lawyer I, I and as an observer and someone that knows a bit about it, I think it takes a lot of time and effort to ensure the credibility of these elections. And I'd, I'd be 100 percent all over that and, and not as a partisan at all. You know, I, I formerly was a Republican. I'm a Democrat for the last 15 years, and I don't care um, about what either party says about the elections. I care about in my local elections, making sure it's safe and it's secure and people on both sides of the aisle have a sense that, yeah, we got this under control. So it's it's imperative. And I'm glad people are running for the purpose of, uh, well, <laughs> uh, those who are running for the proper person purpose of, of making sure there is, you know, real honesty, fairness, and integrity in our election system. Well, as Philadelphia 76ers fans say we got to trust the process. And unfortunately, yes, there's indeed. too many folks out there that are just sowing distrust and fanning the flames of misinformation. Mm-hmm. But uh, you certainly are not. And I really learned a lot. I really appreciate your time in the final sprint of this race. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Take a minute and leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform. Please also consider following us on social media for updates and announcements regarding future episodes and new guests. You're political, so I am sure that you're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. We are too at PA Political Podcast. Visit our website, PAPoliticalPodcast.org, and send us your feedback about this episode and suggestions on future guests. Until next week. 